0: Welcome to Shambhala Publications podcast. This episode is the first of five in a series of the 8th century classic work of Buddhism, Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara or The Way of the Bodhisattva. The presenter is Wilson Fletcher of the Padmakara Translation Group, who, you will soon see, is an extraordinary guide to this work. Along with Helena Blankleader, they have translated not just this work, but also The Nectar of Manjushri's Speech, Kempel's Kumpel's detailed commentary on this text, The Wisdom Chapter, Mipam Rinpoche's commentary on the Ninth chapter of this text, Jigme Lingpa's Treasury of Precious Qualities, an introduction of the middle way, which is Chandrakirti's Madhyamaka Vatara with commentary by Mipam Rinpoche, adornment of the middle way, which is Shantarakshita's Madhyamaka Lankara with commentary by Mipam Rinpoche, and Longchempa's Trilogy of Rest. In this first talk, Wollstone brings this text alive, introducing it and giving the historical context. We hope you find this to be a useful tool to deepen your own commitment to the path of the Bodhisattva in whatever form that might take. Please also visit our site shambhala.com for a wealth of resources on the way of the Bodhisattva including videos
1: of these talks. Good evening everybody. Um, It's very nice to be here. Uh, I'm supposed to give a this evening a kind of overview of the way of the bodhisattva a kind of general overview of the text <clears throat> and to say something a, a little bit about the its history um and its content uh, but of course it's this text it's an enormous text in the sense that it's quite long and its meaning is very profound so we can't do very much in 2 hours so it's it's bound to be a bit superficial so I warn you in advance. But anyway, before I begin, I'd like to make some uh, preliminary remarks about um, what seems to me to be the particular quality of um, Buddhist teaching. Um, Although uh, Buddhism in the West has uh, been classified as a religion, It's fallen into that category. Um, Nevertheless, for better or worse, nevertheless, Buddhist doctrine is special in in the sense that it's not a religion in the ordinary sense of the word, if you want to call it a religion. It's not a question of divine revelations from the beyond. Um, What the Buddha was doing was to teach the nature of phenomena, basically, as a means to understanding our experience and as a means to leading us into a state of freedom. So, um, he talked about the kinds of experiences that we have. He talked about the way phenomena appear, what they are, how and why they appear. He talked about the mind, the structure of the mind. Um, and even though the ramifications of these teachings are extremely vast, nevertheless, there's nothing there that is not in principle knowable to us. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a mystery, right? And one of the most... Um, <laughs> To me, one of the most uh, moving and important things that the Buddha said uh, was that we should not believe him. We should not take on trust what he said. He's not, he didn't say, you know, believe in me and I will save you. He said, whatever I, I say, put it to the test. Try it. <coughs> Try it out. Um, use your reason, use your common sense. And when you find that it's true, then accept it. Um, To me, that was an enormous liberative, liberating idea. It showed the total confidence of the Buddha in his own message. And it also um, freezes, in a way, from many, many kind of dependencies on the Buddha as a person, which you would normally find in other sort of religious systems. And so that the the test of the truth and authenticity of the Buddhist teaching is not whether you can prove that historically the Buddha said it, but uh, according to the effects that it produces in the people that implement it. Um, Now, since he was talking about what is the case that we can find out from ourselves, um, it stands to reason that anybody outside the Buddhist uh, tradition who uses intelligence will actually come come across certain truths that the Buddha himself taught. So it's not a surprise to find that in the history of Western philosophy, for instance, that certain philosophers have actually come up with extraordinary ideas that are actually very similar to what the Buddha said. So that in the case of the, for instance, uh, the British empiricist philosopher Hume came to the conclusion uh, that there was no self, that uh, the self is an illusion, or that uh, the philosopher Barclay came up with the idea that, in fact, there is no such thing as matter external to the mind, that everything is a kind of Mental projection. So, um, and then conversely, there are numerous aspects of the Buddhist teaching that can be used quite independently of the Buddhist tradition itself, and this is what we see happening now. You know, like the the teachings of Buddhism on the on the mind and on the uh, the emotions, on the value of. Uh, um, Mindfulness and attention and so on, and how these can be very healthy for uh, anybody. In a sense, it's n- it's natural that these ideas sh- should and could be used in a in a completely, you know, they're available for everybody. They can be used by any by non-Buddhists uh, of other religions and maybe non no religion at all. Um, and this and this, I think is becoming quite common in America, uh, especially the, I think it's awareness or mindfulness teachings and whatever. Um, But there's one thing, I'm in kind of two minds about it. I I think that, uh, of course, I think it is very beneficial for anybody to be able to apply these teachings or these ideas. And I don't think that the Buddha would in any way be unhappy about it. Um however the only thing I the only thing I would say is that um, these, these techniques which are used outside the Buddhist tradition, uh, we have to one has to one has to be aware that um they can be used for different reasons and different for different objectives. And so I would say that anything that um if if these techniques are being used to enhance one's ordinary existence, to make it comfortable to be in this kind of existential situation that Buddhists would call samsara, in other words, to make samsara a more comfortable place, uh, then uh, you can be sure that it's not what the Buddha was talking about, right? On the contrary, the Buddha the Buddha's teaching is trying to undermine precisely those uh, attitudes, those um, ways of clinging to phenomena, clinging to mental states, and so on, which bind one in a state of unhappiness and unsatisf- unsatisfactoriness. And so, the tendency of Buddhist teaching is always is is never to sort of create uh, a society, a kind of church, a sort of perfect society, rather. It is helping people to draw away from the kind of structures that actually produce more problems than they solve. So I, I say this because uh, when you study a text like the avatara you will find many aspects of it which will not be congenial to modern attitudes. Uh, it'll be a challenge. It'll be... Um, you know, there's a lot, there's quite a bit of political incorrectness there. There's quite a bit of things that uh, challenge our view of what a person is, what society is, relationships and so on. So it's a good, it's, it's quite a good idea when you're approaching this sort of text to do so in, with an attitude of inquiry and light, lightness of touch. It's not, it's not, you don't have to take it. The Buddha said, you don't have to believe anything, i say. Put it to the text and see if it, to test and see if it works. So um, <clears throat> that's really what I wanted to say before I begin. Um, another thing, uh, perhaps a, a story that I'd like to share with you, is, which is when uh, uh, Zongsa Kien came to Dordogne about 12 years ago maybe, and he taught um, the uh, Madhyamaka Vatara of Chandrakirti. Which is a difficult Majjhāmaka text. And he said that he told us this story of uh, when Atisha was in Tibet and he received a message from um, India that the master Shantipa had died. Uh, Whereupon he burst into tears and wept. And uh, his disciples asked him, Why are you so upset? And he said, well, in the whole of India at this time, there were only two people who can tell the difference between the Buddhist view and the Hindu view. One was Shantipa, and the other is me. So, in other words, it was at that time when uh, Hinduism and Buddhism were kind of, were in a state of high development, and there'd been a lot of cross-pollination, and there were many... uh, similarities, which made it difficult for people to discern uh, what the true Buddhist view was. And so Rimshi said, we're reaching that position now in the West between Buddhism and the New Age, New Age philosophy. He said there are many, there's quite a lot of cross pollination, there's quite a lot of similarities in some things, but it's only on in it's only by studying texts like this, the Majamika Kavatara, Chandrakirti, and by extension, the way of the Bodhisattva version today, but we we will actually understand the difference between the Buddhist view and its, I wouldn't say imitators, but anyway, you know what I mean, the kind of uh, uh, um, rather vague uh, sort of ideas and practices that uh, we have. So that's an important uh, point to bear in mind when you, when you approach somebody like Ch- uh, Shantideva, that even if what he says is uh, sometimes not very pleasant to hear, nevertheless, it's important to take it in and to uh, take account of it, even if you don't, in the end, accept it. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, I thought I would say a few words about uh, uh, Shantideva himself. And the history of the um, Bodhicaryavatara. Um, we know that um, Shantideva composed the Bodhicaryavatara, and he also composed another text called the Shiksa Samuchaya, which is a kind of anthology and compendium of many uh, sutras, uh, various Buddhist texts, uh, which has become actually very valuable because it has survived in Sanskrit. And it is the sole source. For those many of the texts that he quoted, which have since been lost in their original uh, language. Anyway, uh, the unfortunate thing about ancient India is that they were not at all interested in history. And they were very, they never uh, noted down the, the dates of anybody. So it's extremely difficult to sort of work out exactly when Shantideva lived. Uh, Fortunately, the Chinese were fanatical record keepers. And so thanks to the visits to India by uh, Chinese pilgrims, we can more or less work out when Shantideva existed. Um, And... It comes well I, to cut a long story short. Um, you know we can we can use various kind of clues and historical uh, indications to kind of uh, situate um, Shantideva. And one particular interesting point is that uh, the Bodhicaryavatara is quoted by Shantarakshita in a vast work called the Tattva Siddhi. Um, which is about Tantra, interestingly enough, mainly. And um, uh, also, there were two Chinese visitors around that time, one called Chuan Sang and another called Yi Tsing, who visited Nalanda and who recorded the dates when they visited. And so we find that um, the Chinese uh, pilgrim, Yid Singh, returned to China in in, in 685, 685, and at that time he made a whole list of all the Madhyamaka teachers in Nalanda, and Shantideva is not mentioned. Neither is his ordaining abbot called Jayadeva. Uh, On the other hand, we have... So, in other words, there's no sign of Shantideva before 685. On the other hand, um, we know that Shantarakshita, who quoted Shantadeva, went to Tibet in 763. And so we can work out that uh, through these two dates, given the fact that uh, Shantideva must have been an adult when he composed his work, he must have been in the, lived in the first half of the 7th century. And that, for that, and also that, he must have been an older contemporary of Shantarakshita, who was the great abbot of Nalanda, who was invited by the Tibetan king Trisong Detsen to establish Buddhism in Tibet. Now, uh, the interesting thing was that when Shantarakshita went to Tibet, he set in motion the whole process of translation of Sanskrit texts into Tibetan. You know, all the ancient sutras, commentaries and so on that were available. And 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 in that first diffusion, that first period of translation, Shantideva was translated. Which shows that his text must have become very popular very early. Became a kind of bestseller guess. Sorry. It's maybe because the yeah, thing is too tight. tight no? Yeah. yeah. So it's quite likely that Shantarakshita and Shantadeva knew each other. Now, um, if you um, uh, read the colophon of the Way of the Bodhisattva, which was composed probably by the great scholar Bhutan, 12th century in Tibet, he said, the text was translated, edited, and finalized in Tibetan on the basis of a manuscript from Kashmir by the Indian scholar Sarvaj Jandeva Nadeva and the monk translator Kawapeltsek. At a later time, this version was revised and finalized according, with the, according to the version from Magadha, together with its commentary, by the Tibetan Rinchen Zangpo and Shakya Lodro. And then a third revision was made by Lodin Sherab. Um, I say I read this out because... As you probably know, if you've read the uh, Bodhichari Vatari, there's a curious legend about uh, Shantideva, how he taught this um, text. You know, he'd been, uh, he was regarded as uh, a complete layabout who didn't do anything and didn't know anything. And so in order to uh, get rid of him, the the pandits of Nalanda sort of arranged this embarrassing situation where he was was expected to teach and so um, they deliberately put this high throne with no stepladder. So they wanted to have a good laugh to watch him clambering up onto the seat and so on. Uh, anyway, he, got, he, he apparently got, got onto the throne without any difficulty. And he began to teach. He said, do you want to hear something, uh, something that you already heard of? Or do you want something new? And so they said, oh, we'd like something new. And so he began to recite the way of the Bodhisattva, much to their astonishment. And when he reached the uh, ninth chapter on wisdom, and when he reached a certain stanza which says, um, talks about how when, the, when an existent phenomena, when existence, when both non-existence, when both existence and non-existence are absent from the mind, the mind becomes peaceful and it becomes free of concepts, which is actually the key to the Majamaka teaching. And at that point, the story says, he began to levitate into the air in company of Manjusri and disappeared. But uh, his voice continued to be heard, and the the, uh, students and pandits of Nalanda, who had extraordinary powers of memory, uh, managed to remember, or, what he'd said. But they came up with two different versions, Uh, a version of 700 stanzas and a version of 1,000 stanzas. Um, Of course, this is a myth. This story is a myth. You don't have to worry about whether it's true or not, historically speaking. But the important thing to remember about myths is that a myth is a story that conveys a meaning irrespective of its historicity. So the whole idea of, of Shantideva vanishing, and yet his voice remaining, is actually quite significant. Because uh, what, has, what has happened is that the text of the, of the Bodhicaryavatara has appeared and has been recorded in various different versions. It's as if Shantideva himself sort of slips through our fingers, but his text remains. And whereas it is said in the colophon that Karl Peltzak yeah. had translated this text from a manuscript in Kashmir 700 verses or stanzas, and that there was another version recorded by the pandits of Magadha, who uh, came up with this longer version. Uh, so we have two completely different versions. Well, not completely different versions, but different versions. And then it is said that they sent people off to look for Shantideva, where he, you know he must have landed somewhere in India. And they eventually found him in the south, and he said, actually, uh, the text of a thousand stanzas is the right one. All right? So, um, curiously enough, and actually, a, quite, a, a text of almost a thousand stanzas is what has survived. And uh, we have it still in Sanskrit preserved in the commentary of Prajna Karamati. However, in the about uh, mid part of the 20th century, um, when they discovered uh, a whole cache of manuscripts in, the, uh, in a place called Tunhuang in on the Silk Road in China, and they discovered uh, a version of the Bodhicaryavatara of roughly 700 stanzas. It only exists in the Tibetan translation, but it has since been studied and compared with the longer version that exists, what we, what, what we would call the canonical version that exists in the, in the Tibetan tengua. And you can see that if you compare these two texts, much of what, nearly everything that is in the Dunhuang version is included in the longer version and with and the longer version contains other bits that have been added here and there, not altogether happily, in the sense that there are, it, it, it creates repetitions. It sometimes disturbs the argument. And so the Japanese scholar who has worked on this text from Dunhuang has concluded that the text in Dunhuang is probably the original translation of Kawa Pelczek, made in the first effusion. <laughs> and that uh, what we have as the canonical version contains extra bits that have come in from the commentarial traditions since. And In fact, actually, quite a lot of the stanzas that have been added are to be found in the Shiksa Samachaya. So it looks like uh, the commentators have sort of added things, thinking that it was maybe helping the meaning, and they have added things that were... At, at a later period, perhaps addressing questions that have become important since Shantideva's death and so on. <laughs> so we have two quite distinct versions. Um, the Sanskrit text preserved in Karamati has been translated into English. The, and then a, text, a Sanskrit text was translated again, as we saw, at a later period, in Tibet. The trouble is that when you compare the Tibetan translation with the Sanskrit text in Prajna Karamati, they're not exactly the same. There are some things in the Tibetan that are not in the Sanskrit. So it looks like there may have been several versions in Sanskrit of Shantideva's text, which is actually quite possible, because unlike uh, Tibet and China, uh, the Indians didn't use printing. They used uh, manuscripts. And when you have manuscript lineages, there are often variations, you know, scribal errors and slight changes that come into play. Now, the reason why I'm telling you all this is that um, if you want to study Shantideva and the Vitara from an academic point of view, all this is, a vex- is very interesting. Academics love to sort of establish the history. And v- importantly, of course, and to try and find as much as they can about the way a text is developed, to try and come up with what they think will be the most accurate representation of what the author wrote. If you're approaching the way of the Bodhisattva from a practice point of view, and as you know, Tibetan Buddhism is the, well, rather the bodhisattva is extremely important in Tibetan Buddhism and has been transmitted down the centuries by generations of scholars and practitioners who have actually, going back to what I said before, not been overly concerned about what the historical Shantideva might have said, but have put his text to the test of experience and have authenticated in that way that they have used the teaching of Shantideva and know its truth, know its effectiveness on the basis of their own experience. And if we who receive this teaching from our Tibetan teachers practice in the same way, we will do the same. So the point is that the the origin, as far as we are concerned, is in the Tibetan. The transmission lineage is in the Tibetan. And so we start not with some putative... Text written or recorded by scribes in India or preserved in Dunhuang or whatever, we start with the text that is preserved in the Tenkyuan, which has been the basis of all that, all those generations of commentators and practitioners. Right. So that's what I meant. That you know, Shantideva kind of slips through our fingers, but his voice remains. And his voice is authenticated by the experience of uh, the practitioners. Um, so as I said, it was uh, translated in the first diffusion, perhaps that, that early text of Koor but later in the second diffusion, it was revised and completed according to the longer Sh- Sanskrit text, right? So um, and, a, and a very important figure in this procedure um, is the great master Atisha, whom I mentioned just now. And he was the one who, uh, after the collapse of Buddhism in Tibet, following the um, uh, persecution of the King Langdharma and the collapse of the, um, the Tibetan empire, uh, Buddhism gradually reformed. Um, and one of the really important figures was Atisha, okay, who was invited to, um, uh, to Tibet just precisely to do that, to sort of re- re-found the tradition. And he founded um, what has come to be called the Kadampa tradition. And the Kadampas had uh, uh, six particularly important texts, uh, one of which was the Bodhicaryavatara, the Away of the Bodhisattva. So, um, when um, I, I mention. Uh, uh, Atisha, at this point, because I want to, before actually going into, uh, you know, a sort of description of the uh, way of the Bodhisattva, I would like to just mention the uh, the way in which uh, Mahayana Buddhism and the way of the Bodhisattva, Bodhicitta, is so, sort of situated within the world of uh, Tibetan, the understanding of uh, the Buddha Dharma that became common in Tibet following Atisha, and according to his view. Uh, spiritual practitioners can be divided into three groups, what they call the three kinds of beings or the three scopes, right? And um, this is important for us to uh, take on board because it's a way of actually uh, understanding where we are personally in this particular uh, story. Um the uh, three scopes has to do with happiness, has to do with what you consider to be happiness, what sort of happiness you're looking for. Uh, or looking at it from the other point of view, which you find as described in the Treasure of Precious Qualities, uh, what you're afraid of. Now, uh, we talk about, uh, from from Atisha's point of view anyway, if you're talking about a spiritual path, you're talking about a path which has in view a future existence, not just this present materialistic, material scenario, right? Right. And so, um, and this is coupled with, as I say, a certain understanding of what happiness is. So the beings who are on the first scope are those who understand happiness in the ordinary sense of the word, what we ordinarily mean by happiness. That's to say, uh, the uh, a fortunate birth in the higher realms of human beings, uh, asuras or gods, and uh, the avoidance of the lower realms, right? And on in this in this first scope, according to the Buddha's teaching, the principle of motion, karmic motion, is ethics is the way you behave. So the teachings that are given on the first scope tell people how to create the causes of happiness in the ordinary sense of the word. So if you're looking for happiness, if you're looking for salvation, if you're looking for rebirth in the upper realms, higher realms of samsara, this is the way to go. You must understand You must understand what, what in Tibetan is called langdor, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Right. It's an ethical teaching. So the, the kind of tone of the first scope teachings is ethics, and the nature of it is to produce happiness, right? Right. Now, obviously, Buddhism has this. It contains these teachings, and it's actually the part of Buddhism that it shares in common with other uh, religious systems. And I would say that if you want to define, as I understand religion, uh, religion has to do with the production of happiness in this life and and the life to come, on the basis of a continuing, a, con, a continuing identity of the person or the soul, right? <sighs> Buddhism can go along with that up to a point. But actually, the specific specificity of Buddhist teaching really kicks in with the second scope, second level, where uh, instead of just being satisfied with happiness in the ordinary sense of the word, uh, it occurs to people that happiness in the ordinary sense of the world is not wholly satisfactory. That, re, that birth in the higher realms is not wholly satisfactory because it is necessarily impermanent. And therefore the scope, the attitude of the beings of the second scope is not merely to have high rebirth in samsara, but to leave samsara altogether. And in order to leave samsara, to understand the root of samsara, which is clinging to a self. So from the second scope onwards, uh, you have Buddhism, that, which, the, kind of, the part of Buddhism that is not shared in other spiritual traditions. <sighs> then uh, there is, but this, the dominant feature of the beings of the second scope is that they want, they want to leave samsara, they want to get away from suffering and the causes of suffering, definitively, and they want to get away themselves, just themselves. It's a kind of individual um, exploit. (laughs) Beings of the third scope are those who are troubled by the suffering not only of themselves but of others and who wish to um, attain some kind of um, spiritual existential capacity that, allow, that will allow them to place other beings in a state of perfect and definitive happiness. So if you want to look at it from the point of view of fear, what you're afraid of, A person on the first scope is afraid of the suffering of the lower realms. A person on the second scope is afraid of samsara... Um, I can't remember that if i were in france i would say too cool but i mean i mean that they're afraid of samsara as such right beings on the third scope are afraid of the self-centered uh, wish for happiness for one's own sake alone and therefore they are afraid of not having what we have come to what we call bodhicitta namely this uh, wish to free others If you take it another step further, people, those who are in the Mahayana and who embrace the practice of Tantra, their object of fear is what is called ordinariness. And they are, because they are interested in what is called pure vision, in which the whole of phenomenal existence is completely transformed. So the thing is this that if you ask yourself, uh, where am I in this story? Um, it's actually quite an interesting question to ask, because if you, if you look at it from Atisha's point of view, he will say that if you are in the Mahayana, you must have the basis of the Hinayana, and in order to have the Hinayana, you must have the possibility of practicing, therefore, high rebirth. So you see that the third scope englobes the second scope and englobes the first um, whereas it's not true the other way around. You can be perfectly satisfied with the first scope or the second. As a Hinayana Buddhist, you don't aspire to Maya and So, on. now uh, the reason why I say this is that um, when we talk it ourselves, honestly, uh, we have to ask: Well, what are we afraid of? Are we really afraid of samsara as such? are we really afraid of the selfish attitude of just wanting happiness for oneself? I think, the pro- I think it's probably fair to say that all of us have the basic fear of the first scope, right? As for the rest, it's up to each, individual, each, each, each individual's path. And one of the things that uh, comes across quite a lot in the mind training teachings is that it is essentially a secret. It's not something you... Other people can see in you. It's something that uh, is a characteristic of your own path. You know, Shantideva says, when he talks about the exchange of self to another, he says, accomplish this sacred mystery. Or when you look at um, uh, uh, the eight verses of Langri Tangpa, when he talks about taking on the sufferings of other beings, he says, do it, we do it in secret. It's not something that anybody can see. So you can be uh, in a crowd of people, and there may be lots of bodhisattvas there, but you have no idea. Or you may be in a whole monastery of people or among all sorts of practitioners, and there may not really be a bodhisattva there at all. You just don't know. All All you know is what is yourself. And this is a very important principle, because it's only that that really changes your life. It's only that that will protect you when you have to face death. It's a, the you know the this sort of degree that you are established in the Buddha Dharma uh, refuge and bodhicitta and so on. So um, another thing that we should note is that um, when the the Buddha Attained Enlightenment. The story goes that he said, I have discovered something which is so profound and so subtle that I, have, I, I can't hope to explain it to anybody. No one will understand this. I will just carry on meditating in the forest until my form aggregate has reached exhaustion. Right. At which point the gods themselves appeared and said, no, there are um, people in the world who are not that sound asleep, who might, you might be able to uh, coax into uh, a form of awareness and uh, wisdom and so on. Please set forth a teaching. And so the Buddha said, okay, uh, to those who wish to hear, the doors of deathlessness stand open. And so off he went to uh, Sarnath to teach his first disciples. Now, uh, it, it- it's very interesting what he did at that point. He didn't sort of, as you might expect from some sort of, um, you know, the kind of teachers we see nowadays, and you know the different sort of cults and what have you. He didn't sort of proclaim, "This is my one. This is my wisdom. This is what I have discovered." He didn't sort of, uh, sort of dazzle any, anybody with his wisdom or anything. He said, uh, "You have a problem." And the problem is that you're suffering. And I have a way uh, where you can find a, a solution to this. The important thing is that he didn't say to them, you poor beings are wandering in samsara. You are bad or you are wrong. You are doing all sorts of, you're making all sorts of mistakes. The Buddha never condemned anybody for being in samsara. He didn't say you're wrong. He didn't say we are wrong. He said, you, you, there's nothing wrong in being sams, in samsara, except that you don't like it. Except that you're suffering. So there's some there's something we can do to fix that. So um, when um, one is practicing Buddhism, when one is trying to uh, understand the teachings and put it into practice. It's never a question of feeling that we're special, that we are somehow superior. Uh, the, absolutely, it's not. Neither is it a question of spreading the word, because people don't necessarily want to hear what we have to say, and that's fine. If eventually, they will. Eventually, beings suffer. Will suffering will. Will come to the, suffering beings will come to the point where they will actually wish to be free from it. And at that point, they will ask for teachings. And at that point, the teachings can be given. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Um, <clears throat> so um, if we turn now to uh, the way of the Bodhisattva, in the commentarial tradition that we find in the Tibetan texts, what they often do is to quote a stanza from uh, Nagarjuna, apparently from Nagarjuna, not sure where, but anyway, it's said to be from Nagarjuna, which he, in which it which says, May bodhicitta, precious and sublime, arise where it has not yet come to be, and where it has arisen, may it never fail, but grow and flourish ever more and more. So there are three stages. May it arise where it has not yet come to be, Where it has arisen, may it never fail, and may it continue to intensify until the goal is reached. And so according to the the commentators, they say the the Bodhicaryavatara, the way the Bodhisattva, can be divided according to these three stages. So the first three chapters on the excellence of Bodhicitta, confession, and taking hold of Bodhicitta is like causing Bodhicitta to arise where it has not yet come to be, then the uh the next three stanzas, the next three chapters, um, which are <laughs> yes, what are they? Uh um I better I better stick with the vocabulary that's here. Um Carefulness, fourth chapter on carefulness, the fifth chapter on vigilant introspection, and the sixth chapter on patience. Are geared to preventing bodhicitta from deteriorating, and then the uh, next three stands, the next three chapters on meditative concentration, on wisdom and dedication, are geared to the intensification of the experience of bodhicitta. Um, so, um, the one thing I forgot to say was when, when in the comparison between the. Uh, Dunhuang text and the canonical text. In the Dunhuang text, there are only nine chapters, whereas the canonical text has ten. Uh, the reason why the Dunhuang text has only nine chapters is that the second chapter and the third chapter are joined together. So two and three are joined together. There'll be a re- there's actually a reason for this, as we will see. Um, now, the point is that Shantideva uh, starts by talking about the excellence of bodhicitta, what a wonderful thing uh, the way of the bodhisattva is, the practice of uh, what, what is called uh, bodhicitta. And um, as you may remember, if you've read this, he goes through a whole list of stanzas in which he explains the benefits of bodhicitta. Like, for instance, um, it will anybody who Truly has bodhicitta and who dies in the state of bodhicitta can never fall into the lower realms. It's a it is the perfect protection. So he says people who are weighed down by their negativities. To have bodhicitta is like being accompanied by a a strong man, you know, a kind of guard who protects them. Bodhicitta has this extraordinary utility that it will stop you from falling into the lower realms. He says that even uh, somebody who is suffering in the dungeons and prisons of samsara, in the worst possible situation that we can imagine in our world, of uh, total deprivation, depravity, uh, and so on, if that person, in the mind of that person, the, the thought of bodhicitta takes birth, he, is totally trans- he or she is totally transformed and becomes a child of the conqueror, an heir of the Buddha, worshipful to gods and human beings, humankind. <laughs> Not men, as we said in the first version of the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, now, in other words, he tries, to, he tries to whip up a sort of feeling of enthusiasm. And this is actually quite useful because even for people, and there may be some here, I, I'm inclined to think that I'm one, who is in the first scope, who wants to escape suffering, who doesn't want to go to the lower realms, even a person at that on that level can start to have a sort of aspiration to this strange, extraordinary idea of bodhicitta. Uh, and one can begin to appreciate the idea, even if, even if, we can't do, we can't perform any of the practices that Chantideva describes. Nevertheless, we can have this interest and devotion, reverence for this teaching. And that itself is an enormous step forward because in order to get anything, you have to want it. It's important to want it. And actually, that's the most important first step. So, Uh, And therefore, um, in this first chapter, uh, Shantideva says there are two kinds of bodhicitta. There's there's an aspirational bodhicitta and a bodhicitta of engagement. They are both immensely important, but of course the bodhicitta of engagement is even greater than the bodhicitta of aspiration. And so uh, it's clear that even if we are not particularly good, at uh, you know, the practice or meditation, we can all have this aspiration. We can all be bodhisattvas in aspiration. It, this class, this class of beings can, can include us. <laughs> and uh, this aspirational bodhicitta, which is something which we have to kind of cultivate, is the protection that uh, Shantideva is talking about. So um, he then goes on to. Um, Say, okay, uh, now that we want this, now that we're interested in bodhicitta, now that we're interested in this path, what do we do in order to set out? Um, And he says there are certain preliminaries. And these are the subjects that are described in the second and the third chapters. He said, in order for bodhicitta to take birth, we have to have uh, what's called merit. Um, and merit is quite a tricky idea. It's tricky because of the word merit that we unfortunately have got stuck with in the uh, translation. It's actually it's actually quite difficult to find an alternative that you know is not five words long. You know, uh, and it's translating the Tibetan word sonam. Uh, but what it means, the trouble with merit is that you, the English word has connotations of uh, something that you deserve, right? Something that um, makes you some kind of special person, I guess. But what sonam is, is more like um, a kind of positive energy that is generated in the mind on the basis of certain kinds of action, certain kinds of attitude. And in general, it's the, act- the activities that draw you away from ego clinging and selfishness, which lies at the heart of the samsaric problem, right? Mm-hmm. This being so, even animals can generate merit. You know, the mother chicken looking after her chick. Okay, she's, worked, she's completely dominated probably by the power of instinct. Nevertheless, she is doing something to protect and sustain another being, and this is a good thing. Uh, obviously, in the human, on the level of, of the human realm, human beings, this can be much greater and much um, more powerful. And it is in proportion that the merit accumulates in a mind stream that the uh, we could say that the appearances of the Dharma start to occur in the outer world. So I remember uh, when we had a visit. Actually, we were preparing for the visit of the Dalai Lama in Dordogne, and we had this idea that um, it was a sort of gimmick, I suppose, but it was a sort of something to do with prayer flags. So we had these kind of hot air balloons, and they were carrying the prayer flags. You know, it's kind of beautiful sort of thing. <laughs> and so people said, "Well, okay, well, what are prayer flags?" And the answer was, well, it's a way of generating merit. It's a way of doing something which draws you into the Dharma. And the interesting thing about the the idea of merit is that ultimately it's based on the notion of the Buddha nature, which is implicit in every mind stream, but which is hidden. It's a sort of hidden treasure, which is covered by the different veils, (laughs) obscurations. And as merit starts to accumulate, this teacher said, the veils of the obscurations start to get a little thinner. And as a result, the appearances of the Dharma appear in the outside world. So there'll be a time, there'll be a historical point in the history of a given mind stream when for the first time they hear the word Buddha or they see a Buddha image or they see a text or something, whatever. And gradually, these appearances of the dharma will become stronger and stronger and clearer and clearer. You will eventually reach a point, by being born in the human world, where you can actually encounter the dharma as a teaching, where the ideas of the dharma can be absorbed into the mind so that the mind is transformed. Eventually, you will meet a person who is actually able to place you in the state, you know, the nature of the true nature of the mind, what we call the root lama. And, and in other words, you've got, as it were, the appearance of the dharma moving towards this way and the merit moving in the other direction. Eventually they meet. And when the, the, the understanding, the realization occurs... So Shantideva says quite specifically, in order for bodhicitta to occur... You must generate merit. And so he says one of the best ways of generating merit is to make offerings. And so he talks about, um, uh, you know, this, the, all the, the beginning of the second chapter is about uh, making offerings. Um, I'm going on too long, I'm afraid. Uh, at the same time, so I, and actually, in, in a way, uh, this is interesting because when you, a, lot, a lot of the offerings that he makes are purely imaginary, you know, the beauty of nature and so on. And, that is quite, and that's quite interesting because the fact that you can perceive a beautiful world is, a, is an indication of the merit in your mind stream. It's actually, it's actually thanks to your merit that you perceive the beauty of the sunset or whatever. So when you offer the beauty of the sunset, you're offering... Something that is very personal to you. At the same, then he goes on in, the, in this chapter to uh, confession, and um, this is also an important point uh, to, to take on board because, uh, again, the word confession is problematic because it has the, the idea of you know confessing something that we've done, something bad, guilt, and so on and so forth. Um, and you you know, in the Judo-Christian tradition, you're asking for forgiveness, right? right? In this chapter, what Shantideva does is that he invokes the presence of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, and then he declares, This is what I'm like. He doesn't ask them to forgive him. What he's doing is he's saying, I I bring this into consciousness, I own it as being myself and I decide to change. And it's in the presence of the Buddhas that this new direction takes place. That's what confession is in in Buddhism. In fact, the the word for confession in Tibetan is shakpa, which is connected with a verb meaning to split or to cut. And the idea is that you are cutting a kind of trajectory that you've been following all this time and you're going to change, so that actually... Uh, the important feature is not only bringing into consciousness your negativities, your sins, but also deciding that you 're going to change and it 's the decision that you 're going to change' it's, it's, these are two of the four um, opposing powers that we talk about in the in teachings on confession, which actually purify the the stream. so in other words in the in the second chapter he um, generates merit and he puts an end to a a course of a way of behaving that he wants to stop because he wants to change direction. And then he, in the third chapter, he, um, called Taking Hold of Bodhicitta, which was actually fused with the second chapter in the original, probably the original translation, he then uh, follows the confession, generation of merit with other, uh, um, practices which um, you as Buddhist practitioners you probably recognize as the uh, seven branch practice you know it's confession, generation of merit um, uh, requesting the teachers to teach requesting the teachers to remain and so on and so forth, dedication can you hear me? yeah yeah um, and then this, this kind of, the third chapter comes to a kind of climax where he uh, actually takes a vow. He actually says, um, um, just as all the Buddhas of the past have brought forth the awakened mind and in the precepts of the Bodhisattvas, step by step, abode and trained, likewise, for the benefit of beings, I will bring to birth the awakened mind. And in those precepts, step by step, I will abide and train myself. And so this is this is as this this actual text this of Chantadeva is now used very often as the text for the taking of the bodhisattva vow. Uh, it's still on the level of aspirational bodhicitta. It sort of brings to perfection aspirational bodhicitta. Um, and uh, he then finishes the as you may remember, he then finishes this chapter with this wonderful uh, sort of celebration of what's happened in his to him you know so now we move on to uh, the uh, the ways in which uh, bodhicitta can be protected and the importance of this lies in the fact that um, uh, for people like ourselves we can have um, we can have this wonderful idea we can uh, meet the dharma and we can receive teachings but uh, the frightening thing is that we can lose it. It can sort of drain away. Uh, you know, like it's like being uh, like somebody who's on the surface of a river. If they're uh, if they're not actually moving forward, and just treading water, the river itself will take them downstream. In other words, if you if you just have this idea and you leave it. It will, you will lose it. Uh, you know, and this happens. I mean, you can find. I know people who have been practicing the Dharma for years, who have done three-year retreat, maybe two three-year retreats, and at the end of their life, they've forgotten it. They're kind of empty-handed, and they have to face death with the same amount of confusion as if they'd never practiced. So this is something that you really have to, if you're interested in this. Practice it's something you really have to take on board that you can't sort of leave things. you have to keep going forward um just It's just a question of gravity in the end you know, you know if you let the rock out of your hand, it'll fall to the ground um, if we leave if we leave our minds to their own devices, we will degenerate. There's no doubt about it so once we've sort of met this incredible uh, teaching. We mustn't let it go. You know, as, they say, as Kempo Kumpa says, it's like a blind man who has happened to have got hold of a cow's tail. You know, a cow's tail is going here, there, and everywhere. If he loses it, the chances of him catching hold of that tail again are pretty slight. So we mustn't, we mustn't let go. Um, <clears throat> and so um, the next chapter, the fourth chapter, is on carefulness. And, um, and it's a reflection on the consequences of just letting things slide. And so it's, on this, it's at this particular time that Chantideva, for the first time in the text, starts to frighten us. He tries to scare us with uh, you know, the idea of the possibility and the reality of falling into the lower realms, of the terrible sufferings of death that none of us can escape. Um, It's a terrible thing to see somebody die in fear. Um, On the other hand, it's a wonderful thing to see somebody die peacefully, you know, because they have used their life well and they don't regret, they don't have any regret. Um, So... um, He's, he uses these ideas to kind of shake us into a sort of, uh, you know, a kind of awareness of what the situation is. And then uh, he talks about the things, well, okay, what is it that makes our mind degenerate? And therefore he brings up the, concept, the uh, idea of defilement, um, the or sometimes called the afflictions, the kind of things that sort of pollute uh, the mind, and uh, which can be very strong, you know habits of anger, habits of lust, habits of dishonesty, cheating, pride, and so on and so forth that we we all have because you know they we 're human beings, and we 've sort of brought them with us um, and yet he says you know when you 're trying to shake an old habit, it can be very difficult because it's so in the end, the habit is so ingrained, and so he says. Yes, it's true, but you mustn't give up. And the reason why you mustn't give up is actually the defilements are quite easy to get rid of, if you know how. He says defilements are only ideas. They're just thoughts. If you learn to recognize these thoughts, you can dissipate them with the eye of wisdom. (laughs) He says... "Um, um, He says, miserable defilements scattered by the eye of wisdom. Where will you now run when driven from my mind? Whence will you return to do me harm? Because he says that if you've got an ordinary enemy, you can chase him out of the state, but he will gather his forces and come back. But once you've pushed this habit out of your mind, there's nowhere for it to go because it's a mental event. It just actually disappears. He says, defilements are not in the object nor within the faculties, nor somewhere in between. And if not elsewhere, where is their abode whence they inflict their havoc on the world? They are simple mirages, and so take heart, banish all your fear, and strive to know their nature. Why suffer needlessly the pains of hell? There's no need to fall, provided you understand how to uh, deal with uh, defilement. And this idea is taken up again in uh, the next chapter, which is um, on vigilant introspection, which is a whole whole kind of uh, way that Shantideva says that this is how you must, uh, once you've sort of reorganized yourself and got your act together and and you've sort of embarked on this aspirational bodhicitta, and once you understand the nature of defilement, this is how you have to behave if you want to, keep a grip on the cow's tail um and so he talks about this uh in Shibetan it's called sheshin which is sometimes translated as a mental spy that is to say the capacity of the mind to look into into itself and see what's going on a sort of enhanced state of awareness of your own secret mental state you know that nobody else can see but you and um I remember that uh, Dingo Kiense Rinpoche said that this chapter, he was a great teacher of Dzogchen, he said this chapter, the fifth chapter, is actually a pointing out instruction, uh, which in, you know, in the Dzogchen tradition, the, the, the master points out uh, the nature of the mind and helps the disciple into it. And he says this is actually, uh, by, uh, but he does so by sort of showing the, the way the mind is. Uh, and um, how thoughts arise and dissolve, and so on. And so he says that actually this is this is a very good and useful um, notra, a very useful introduction. And um, it is here that, um, no, for for instance, he gives us all sorts of uh, helpful tips. You know, like uh, when you when you you sort of cultivate a, a habit of being present to what's going on in your mind. Of course, you can't do that just like that. It implies all the teachings on Shine, on the teachings of Shamatha, calm abiding, you know, sitting meditation where you create a kind of space in your mind so that you don't immediately react uh, to situations. You, you develop the capacity to um, be aware of what's going on and even if it's only for a short time to decide what you're going to do about it. So he gives this is it's in this chapter that we... Have what I call the log teaching, you know, where he says, when you see uh, pride coming up, when you want to be fishing for praise, when you want, uh, you know, uh, to kind of do something to get your career on, you know, and so on and so forth, when you feel uh, disdainful to somebody, when you feel like reacting angrily, he said, be like a log, like a log of wood, just close down. Don't do anything. Keep it inside. Don't act, but look at its nature. Look at the look at the the thing that's arising in the mind, and uh, it's here. Actually, the, the, this is the first time in this text that you find a separation forming between mind and body, which is very characteristic of uh, Buddhist teaching, and is something that's new. To a lot of people coming from a Western background. If they're coming from, uh, for instance, Orthodox uh, Christian point of view, which is quite influenced by Aristotle on the philosophical level, they think of the body and soul as being a kind of union, unit and that death is an artificial separation and that the two will come together on the last day, right? That The resurrection of the body, uh, which is also a feature of certain kinds of Judaism, right? So, you know, all this stuff about rapture that is quite popular in America has to do with this idea that the mind and body are somehow fused. Whereas in Buddhism, this is not so. That... uh, Buddhism, uh, it tends to uh, regard uh, the body. Of course, it accepts the body as vitally important, but it is something that is an object of the mind's consciousness. Somehow the mind is primary. Uh, It is the mind uh, that becomes enlightened, and the bodies that the enlightened mind may have are actually... Different from the sort of uh, physical body that we seem to have in our present existence, we can 't go into this too much detail now, but the point I'm, what the point i 'm trying to say is that um, um, there is this this idea that the mind is primary and that the body can be sort of analyzed by the mind into. You, you can sort of see that it's not the solid individual thing that you thought it was, and it's certainly not your identity. Um, you can, and, and for that reason, you can kind of detach from it. It doesn't have to be so important. Um, and so this is very different also from the kind of materialistic attitude that you find very prevalent in the West where, you know, the only reality is matter and that the mind is a kind of epiphenomenon of the brain. This is quite different from what Buddhism says. Um, <clears throat> it's more like that matter is more like an epiphenomenon of the mind, if you, if you wish. So, then, so there is vigilant introspection suspicion where Shantideva really uh, emphasizes the necessity of, mental, of being present to what's going on and to sort of keep a, keep a grip on the uh you know the way you with the way we behave the way we react and so on and so forth so again that's another way to stop uh the mind from degenerating the mind from going down in the wrong direction so in this chapter there is all the teachings on mindfulness which um uh is very important in buddhism and which is which is proving very useful for non-buddhists also because it is a way of actually solving many problems in ordinary life and, um, and learning how to live well. Um, then uh, the sixth chapter, we move on to... Um, we finished half a day, right? Huh? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I won't go on more than that. Uh, then we move on to the sixth chapter, which is the chapter on patience. And where Shantideva addresses what is in fact the greatest danger of all, Uh, and that is the problem of anger. Uh, Shedang in Tibetan. Again, anger is not an entirely satisfactory translation because there are certain occasions where anger is actually, a certain kind of anger is actually an appropriate response to certain situations you know, a certain indignation against injustice, for instance, or a kind of, you know, you might, as a parent, you might put on a show of anger in order to sort of scare your child into doing the right thing, right? Uh, But, of course, it's not the kind of destructive hating anger uh, that Shantadeva is talking about. The real defilement of anger is an attitude of mind which wishes to destroy and it is the worst of all the three poisons because that's what it does. It it ends in death and destruction. Uh, desire, which is another poison, is not quite so bad because at least when you desire something, you preserve it. You don't destroy it. So that doesn't mean to say that desire is a good thing, but it's not as bad as anger. And so Chantideva says that... Uh, The problem with that, uh, just one moment of anger is enough to destroy all the merit that has been gathered in a mind stream over a very long period of time. It's definitely something that we can't afford to happen, to have happen. Um, And therefore, the the real um, task in hand is to uh, find out what it is that provokes anger and to get rid of it. And he says, interestingly, that one of the main things that causes anger is unhappiness, discontent, uh, you, things that happen to you that you don't like, uh, things uh, that happen to unpleasant things that happen to you, unpleasant things that happen to people that you happen to like, pleasant things that happen to people that you don't like, and so on so you have to sort of take take the trouble to look uh, through the uh, these different sources of anger and to uh, deal with them because you can't afford uh, anger to erupt in this completely uncontrolled and destructive way um, <clears throat> now we'll be going into this uh, this question more in detail uh, later on this weekend. But um, there are many things in this chapter that are actually quite a challenge to us because we find Shantideva saying things that we uh, don't quite fit with our ideas of uh, guilt, responsibility, um, retaliation, and so on and so forth, justice. Um, For instance, he says that um, one way to deal with anger is to look at the person who's attacking you and to realize that they're not responsible for what they're doing, Uh, that they are doing this to you because of negative emotions, defilements that are happening to them. So he says that when somebody hits you with a stick... You're not angry with the stick. You're angry with the person who holds the stick, right? So according to this example, the person who's attacking you is the stick. And that which is holding the stick are this person's negativities, this person's negative emotions. So the object, the problem is the negative emotions of that person, not the person, not these persons themselves. So that's a kind of invitation to kind of free up a little bit the situation and to see that, um, you know, people are not intrinsically enemies. They're not intrinsically hateful or intrinsically hostile. So the question is, well, why are they hostile to me? And then uh, there comes the answer, well, it's because of your karma, because of your relationship to this person. Uh, And... uh, so Chantadeva and the mind training texts in general tend to say that when you are attacked, it's like an echo coming from a cliff towards the person who first shouted. And so they say that, uh, of course, this is very simplistic because the, the question of karma is immensely complicated. You know. But just for the sake of argument, Chantadeva says, it's like uh, this person is attacking me because in the past at some stage, maybe not the immediate past maybe very far in the past i did something or this mindstream did something uh, that caused suffering in this other mindstream and so they say uh, it's like the the weapon that you first used to att- attack that other being is now turned back and is attacking you so uh and this brings up the whole a very uncomfortable question about um responsibility and uh the big challenge is to see that um in any kind of conflicted situation however terrible however appalling karma is at work um that there are no innocent victims in samsara you know we uh We are aware that people are abused, that people, you know, apparently innocent people are abused. And it's the question is, why does this happen? And if you say it just happens, then you're saying it's just chance. That means it's chaotic. But the whole doctrine of karma is to show that there is a pattern in things. And once you understand that, you realize that you can do something about it that when you understand the doctrine of karma, you can actually change the situation in, with regard to one's future existences, of course. So it's very important to see that the doctrine of karma is completely a kind of impersonal law. It's not a matter of uh, retribution. It's not a matter of rewards and punishments. And this is quite new to people coming from the Judeo-Christian tradition, where uh, the moral law is understood in terms of a divine law, which is either obeyed or disobeyed, and that what happens to you afterwards, if you've done something bad, is a punishment. (laughs) This is not at all uh, the Buddhist uh, doctrine. It's completely foreign uh, to the Buddhist idea of karma. So one of the uh, examples I I often give to people is that uh, if somebody jumps off uh, the top of a skyscraper and hits the ground and you know, is completely mashed up and dead and killed, you would say this is a terrible thing. But you wouldn't say that the person who smashes against the pavement is being punished for jumping off the skyscraper. You would say it's just a consequence. It's a question of cause and effect. That's what karma is all about, cause and effect. So when you find yourself being aggressed by somebody, once again, Shantadeva says, this person is attacking me because I've called them to do so through my actions in the past. It's a consequence of something that I did. And that's all there is to it. It's not a question of guilt. It's not a question of a retribution. It's completely automatic, like gravity. <sighs> um so that's something that is uh, that is gone into uh, in some detail in the in the patience chapter and actually uh i think that Shantideva, who is completely at home with this idea of karma uh completely steeped in this idea of karma he actually gives all these examples as a kind of joke you know it's a kind of light-hearted way of looking at it you know like the stick and so on the echo um the fact is that in a situation of conflict, it helps to see that the person in front of you is attacking you is not your intrinsic enemy. Nobody is, nobody is intrinsically hostile. They are, they are hostile because of a, a very complicated network of causes and conditions, circumstances. So that's another way of dealing with uh, attacks, how, learning how not to respond with uncontrolled anger. To sort of take a step back, and to sort of um, deal with it in a, without actually losing it, <clears throat> um, and you know we have to even and the challenge is that uh, you know because of our because of our perceptions um, and because of our emotions, we respond to situations emotionally. So if you take the situation of a a child being abused or, or killed, it's horrible, and you respond with anger and grief, and uh, you want that wicked person to be punished or to re- be removed. Why? Because this is an innocent child, defenseless, so on and so forth. And of course that's true, in a way. But from a Buddhist point of view, When you look at a baby or when you look at a child, you're not looking at a child, something that is intrinsically a child. You're looking at a being that has come from many, many thousands and millions of lifetimes before. This person that comes into your life as a baby is not young. It's ancient. And so from that point of view, everybody in samsara has the same age. We're all the same age. It's just that our bodies happen to be at different stages, right? So that idea is also quite an interesting way of looking at children and looking at old people and sort of getting sort of breaking out of the sort of stereotypes that we often fall into uh, because we are taken in by appearances people's bodies that we can perceive okay um. So once you get once you understand the the this idea of karma, I think the rest of the difficult patience chapter kind of falls into place. So and with with the when you, when you deal with anger, when you deal with patience, when you learn to practice patience, that is the main way of preventing bodhicitta from declining, from this kind of insight that you have, from sort of being dissipated. Um, so it's a really important practice um, for the people that you know, people on the path. <laughs> um, so then we move on to uh the third section, which is um how to intensify bodhicitta, and which consists of the uh the chapter, the seventh chapter on diligence or heroic perseverance, um, the third chapter on meditative concentration, and the, ninth, the eighth chapter on meditative concentration, and the ninth chapter on wisdom, the famous or infamous wisdom chapter of the uh, way of the Bodhisattva. Um, although uh the wisdom chapter comes right at the end where shantideva kind of talks in rather general terms about what, what has come come to be known as Madhyamaka, a difficult sort of buddhist philosophy nevertheless the basic insights of Madhyamaka are constantly present actually throughout uh the way of the bodhisattva the text so many of the arguments that he uses are based on the idea that you know the self is not really a really existent thing uh, or that um, uh, the whole possibility of exchanging oneself and uh, again with another is sort of based on this understanding of uh, emptiness. But it's only it's in the ninth chapter that he sort of formally goes through uh, the doctrine of Madhyamika. Anyway, so when we get to the the third section, uh, which is uh, heroic perseverance, I think we. It was translated as heroic perseverance in version one and diligence in version two. Uh, I'm not sure that diligence is an improvement, but anyway, diligence is the translation of the Tibetan word sundru. Heroic perseverance is a translation of the Sanskrit word virya. And virya is connected with our word virile, actually. (laughs) It's connected with, uh, or virtue, it comes in virtue, or virago, you know, kind of strong woman, right? Uh, this, the, vir, the vir part is actually, because Sanskrit and English belong to the same linguistic family, there are often linguistic similarities. Anyway, the, the idea is uh, uh, this capacity to carry on in the face of difficulties, um not to uh, turn back um and this is where the whole notion of heroism comes into the way of the bodhisattva. uh the the, the word in tibetan the pa part is actually uh, a word meaning a hero or a heroine someone who is fearless <laughs> So uh, this brings into play the idea of bravery and courage into the, the path. And so once again, uh, Shantideva says, well, if we're going to do this, we have to identify uh, its obstacles, the things that, are, that militate against it. And the main thing, uh, the main obstacle to diligence is laziness, which he, de- he uh, defines as um an inclination towards non-virtue defeatism and self-contempt so when we talk about laziness we usually think oh you know can't be bothered to do something or it's too difficult i want to rest but from a buddhist point of view it's all those things that draw you away uh, from the practice so um especially feeling the feeling that you can't do it, the feeling that you, you're no good. This is actually a form of laziness, as far as Shantideva is concerned. That's quite an interesting reflection, because you know, we often feel, uh, get these feelings of uh, dejection and discouragement. And uh, Shantideva basically says, like everything else, this is just a thought, a state of mind, and you've got to shake yourself out of it. He said even, even insects... Will eventually gain Buddhahood, so somebody like you who's got so so much going for for them, you can actually carry on all you need to do is to understand the situation you 're in and to take heart so um and anyway, he goes on to say it's like a taste for idleness, a craving for sleep um no qualms about the sorrows of samsara, feeling that you know things are not that bad, that lead to inactivity and laziness and so on and so forth. So all those kind of things have to be um, removed. And so when uh, in this beginning of this uh, the diligence chapter, uh, Shantideva really cranks up his message about the urgency of the situation, the fact that we have got this human opportunity and that it is so difficult to find, and it is so easy to lose, and that it's so easy to fall. Now, many people think that, um, you know, I've, I'm a human being, I'm, I'm doing okay, I've met the teachings, I've, med- I've, met, I've got a, a good lama, um, I'm okay, everything's all right. But as the Dalai Lama says, in fact, for somebody who doesn't make effort, there's not much you can do for them on their deathbed. You know, as Shantideva says, uh, not Shantideva, Khenpo Kumpal says in the Nature of speech, his commentary on this text, he says, you know, people shout, oh, Rinpoche, Rinpoche, um, oh, help me. But the Rinpoche can't do anything. He can't sort of pick you out and put you in uh, liberation if you haven't generated the causes. So, uh, we mustn't sort of lull ourselves into a, into a false sense of security and think that um, we can let things slide. That's basically his his idea so he really he really says, um, you know, death is soon to come, death is terrible, you risk losing everything. so get your act together uh, and make sure that you." don't lose it that you've you know this situation you mustn't lose you've got to sort of um create the causes for high rebirth create the causes for renunciation create the causes for bodhicitta um, and so when people ask me about this uh, you know what can i do to make sure that i don't fall well the teachings say you know you have to stop n- stop your negativities that's one thing you have to um accumulate as much merit as you can and above all you must make aspirations you know like when you're in the presence of a stupa when you're in the presence of a great master you silently say may i never lose this connection may i never lose the dharma may i find it again quickly in my next life and to do it often to get used to having that frame of mind, because that frame of mind is actually a state of refuge. And if you die in a state of refuge, you, don't, you can't fall. Um, so that's an important thing to, to remember. And so basically, Shantideva says in stanza 16, do not, de- do not be downcast, but marshal all your powers make an effort, be the master of yourself. You can do it, in other words. And then he says, practice the equality of self and other, practice the exchange of self and other. And this is the first time in the way of the Bodhisattva that he actually mentions the practice of engaging bodhicitta, bodhicitta of engagement. He will uh, talk about it in much greater detail in the eighth chapter. Um, And also as a kind of supplement to this, you know, he says, "Be the master of yourself." And he said, "You ought to uh, really uh, develop a sense of pride, a sense of confidence." He says there is a there is a, a pride which is a a defilement, arrogance, where you think you're better than other people, where you scorn others and look down on them. But there is also a good kind of pride, which is to say, "I've got what it takes. If I do, if I, if I put one foot in front of the, you know." One step at a time, I can do it. And he says, this is the kind of pride that you must cultivate. He says, this pride is not a defilement. This pride is what will carry you through. This this feeling of self-confidence that uh, enables you not to give up. Um, So he says... Through their, but through their power of bodhicitta, former sins are totally consumed, and merit ocean vast is gathered in. Mounted on the horse of bodhicitta, which puts to flight all mournful weariness, what lucid person could be in despair? Proceeding in this way from joy to joy. Um, joy is a. Seems to be a very characteristic attitude of the Bodhisattva, even, even in the most difficult situations. I remember uh, Ken Rinpoche saying once that, uh, you know, compassion, where you feel the sufferings of others, uh, is actually a state of joy. And this is, a, this is an interesting thing, because once again, compassion is a bad translation, but it's what, what we have. We have to understand, if we use, we use the word compassion, but you have to understand it properly in the Buddhist way. Uh, etymologically, compassion means suffering with somebody, right? Uh, in other words, sharing their sorrow, which is good as far as it goes. But in, the, in Tibetan, the word for compassion is nyingje, which consists of two uh, elements. Nying, which means the heart, and Je, which means the Lord, Compassion is Lord, the Lord of the heart, the the King of the heart, the Queen of the heart, right? right. Uh, it's um. You know, like Dorje means the Lord of the stones, the like a diamond. So anyway, so the the in in Yingjing in Tibetan and Karuna in Sanskrit, there is always this notion that not only do you share the suffering of others, but you, you decide that you're going to do something about it. You're going to end suffering. That's an, that's an intrinsic uh, element of, of compassion in the Buddhist sense. So uh, pride, a good sort of pride, self-confidence, that is a an important element in, in diligence, in, in this heroic perseverance. So then we move on to um, Meditative concentration, and here, uh, which is actually the longest chapter in the book, where uh, Shantideva, it divides into two sections. Shantideva talks about the conditions that are conducive to meditative concentration, and the second part is to do with what you do with meditative concentration, namely the uh, equalization of self and other and the exchange of self and other. So, in this um we'll be going looking at it in greater detail over the weekend, but uh, he talks about the importance of solitude, the importance of practice. you know you can't sort of deal with all these problems right when they're happening to you. You have to sort of strengthen yourself in meditation uh shamatha obviously, but also the different kinds of meditations that are taught in the and the mind training teachings um and, um, and then he talks about the things that kind of militate against uh, that solitude, militate against the qualities that you need, the situation that you need in order to develop your concentration. And of course, he's talking to a, a, um, a congregation of monks. Remember that this text is what Shantideva actually said to them, right? So he's talking about their problems as men, uh, celibate men, And so he talks about, uh, you know, in fairly traditional terms, about the uh, problems involved in getting a mate, getting a a woman, uh, wanting a woman, and so on and so forth. And, of course, if you read it like this in this feminist age, it's kind of offensive, probably for many women. But you have to remember that in a different situation, if he'd been a a dakini or a a woman practitioner teaching a congregation of nuns she would have said the same thing but changed the gender so nowadays where we have don't have just you know you have you have all sorts of um of sexual orientations the reader has to make adjustments according to their sexual orientation right it's fairly it's fairly simple and so he talks about the disgusting aspects of the body and you know, really what, what is it that you're desiring in that person. And it's actually a very interesting reflection because when you talk about desire uh, and love, in inverted commas, in the way we normally understand love these days, you're, what, what happens when you're in that kind of passionate relationship is that you're actually engaging with something that's a complete mirage um, you know, when when you, um, to use the uh, language of modern psychology and, you know, the discovery by Freud and Jung of the reality of projection is also another way in which, you know, non-Buddhists have actually happened upon ideas that are important in Buddhism too. This whole idea of projection is that when you are in love with somebody... <laughs> you are actually projecting onto them something that's coming from inside you. And that's why that person appears to be 100% wonderful, 100% desirable, 100% beautiful, and so on. And we all, anybody that's been in that situation, I suppose we all have, you know, you enter into a relationship and then gradually you start to notice things in that other person that don't quite fit your projections and you start to withdraw your projections and you see that person more accurately as they are, and then you realize, well, you know, I don't like, I don't like that, or, you know, I'd, I'd rather somebody else. And actually, that's quite an important point in any relationship because then it's at that point when you see the person as that person really is that you can uh, decide to love them because love, real love, is not a matter of projection. It's a matter of decision. I remember when I was studying theology in the Catholic Church, um, I was kind of shocked by you know, Thomas Aquinas. He says that love is in the will. It's not a matter of passion. It's not a matter of being in love. It's something that you decide to do. Um, and that's, I think, a very important point, it's that point where you know you either your, your marriage breaks up or you carry on. You decide to carry on. Um, <clears throat> so uh, yes, yeah, so Saint Shantideva goes into that idea that you know when you're in love with somebody, when you desire somebody, you're desiring something that isn't actually there, and if you look more closely, you can sort of dismantle your craving for that person through understanding. Which is actually quite important if you're talking to a celibate monk who wants to keep his vows right for other you know for whatever reason because you can suffer a, a person who's living a life of celibacy can suffer a great deal uh through frustration and so forth because they haven't been taught how to deal with uh, desire um <clears throat> so that's quite important that's, that's something that Shantideva goes into in some detail um and then um so you give up attachment for a lover, desire for a lover. You give up attachment to possessions. Again, he goes into the, you know, the way that impermanence of possessions, their instability. The fact that if your happiness is based on what you possess, then your happiness is very unstable, because your possessions can very easily fluctuate. You know, you can lose them, and so forth. So the, all that is very kind of wise advice, and then he moves on to uh, what is really the sort of kernel of the whole uh, book, the whole text, which is uh, the recognition of the equality of beings, of oneself and other, and that therefore the possibility of exchange of self and other. And um, this is... uh, um, um, Again, it has to do with... When when you sort of get into this idea, it has to do with, again, projection and the way in which we uh, divide up the world. You know, for a start, uh, we, you know, I can say to you that there is only one I in this room and it's here, right? You are objects of my consciousness. I'm the only self here. You're part of my self-experience, right? And because we do that, because we kind of cling to self, we divide the world up into three groups. We divide the world up into those people or beings that are precious to us, important to us, and who are desirable, maybe. You feel deeply involved with them. You feel responsible for them. They are important. You feel they are intrinsically important. Then there's the group of people that you don't like and you'd rather not see and you don't care about. And then between those two poles, there is the whole vast universe of beings you don't know and aren't important to you and you don't care about. So this division of the world into these three groups is based on myself. You know, I talk about uh, my body, my house, my wife, my children, um, my job, my town, my country, my species. And these are all important because of my, right? So if you, if you sort of take that on board and you see that you, that's what you're doing to the world, you're dividing them up, and then you try to see it from their point of view, the people that you've made, you, who are all the objects of my experience, right? If I try to see it from your point of view, I can see that even though uh, my wife is more important than anybody else, or my children are more important than anybody, my children are more important than their children, if you see it from the point of view of the children, you will see that everybody has the same quality. Tibetans say they have the same taste. That is to say, everybody wants happiness. Nobody wants to suffer. So from the point of view of the object, there is no difference in the field of beings. This idea that these children are intrinsically special and those children aren't intrinsically special is just my own projection, the projection of my ego. So when you do that, you begin to see that um, beings are the same, They are of the same taste. They are equally important. Even the ones that you don't like and all the beings that you don't know, they're all in the same predicament. And so that's a very important step, I think, in the Bodhisattva training, that uh, you recognize that everybody is the same, irrespective of the way we kind of feel about them. Um, And also... When do you do that? If you follow Shantideva's arguments, well we'll see what they, you know, sometimes they seem a little bit far fetched, but anyway. But if you take them seriously, actually they're quite powerful. And he, he says, Okay, everybody's the same. And actually when I say I'm special, it's actually the same kind and what I'm saying when I'm what I'm doing when I'm saying I'm special is actually the same thing that I'm doing when I say my kids are special. You can actually abstract from your own self, funnily enough. And you can say, actually, all beings and myself are equal. Right? We all want to be happy. We don't, nobody wants to suffer. So you gradually kind of get used to this idea that beings are the same. They're of the same taste. And then he moves on to the next stage, And he says, um, well, if that's the case and if uh, I can sort of step back from myself and my own self-interest and my own problems and my own desires and so on, my own feeling of self-importance, this self, this feeling that the, the second self, which is actually looking at this, can change the tables. And instead of being engrossed in this particular person, he, Shantideva says, you can become engrossed in other beings, in the other beings, that they become as important to you as you are to yourself at the moment. And so he introduces a lot of quite interesting ideas at that point to say, you know, to generate this feeling of caring um, that... um, Beings are precious to you. Uh, and, uh, and as this sort of takes shape and becomes stronger and stronger, uh, the, the, the accomplished bodhisattva is able to uh, take on the sufferings of others, as Shantideva says, with joy, with enthusiasm, like a, like a, 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 a bodhisattva who reaches that stage can go into the deepest hell in search of beings with the same joy of a swan landing in a lotus lake it's, it's a beautiful idea but it means that uh you know this is actually and it's it's very important to sort of think about this because this is if you if you've embarked on the bodhisattva path that's your destiny that uh, that, that will you will eventually end up like that and you will be willing to come back again and again and again into the sufferings of samsara, in order to um, take people, take them to you, to yourself, and um, you know, I, I remember being very moved by just a kind of throwaway remark that the Dalai Lama once made, and he said that um, you know, when when we talk about a Buddha appearing in the world and one receiving the teachings and being and achieving enlightenment on the basis of that buddha that is all a very kind of complex interdependent network of causes and conditions and um you know many they say that many buddhas have appeared in the in the history of the world but here we still are we weren't able to be saved by them they they they, they didn't sort of on us that we didn't take their teachings and we didn't we didn't attain enlightenment on the basis of them. And he says it's because there is a karmic connection between the Buddha and the people who can be helped by that Buddha. And he said there are beings in the in the world, the universe, universes, whom only you can save. And these beings are waiting for your enlightenment to happen. That they can only be saved when you attain Buddhahood and go for them, go, go to find them. And you know, this is a, an amazing thought that there are people waiting for on, only us, only we can help them. So that's a kind of spur, another spur, to this you know, this feeling of enthusiastic enthusiastic interest in the the bodhisattva path. Um, it's now uh, twenty-five to nine. Um, I think the I think we can leave the wisdom chapter till the uh, till we, de- we deal with it over the weekend because it's a it's a complicated business. Except to say, as I said before, the the whole idea of emptiness, the whole idea that the self is a fiction. Uh, and uh, a centre of problems. This whole idea, which is um, central to the Majjhamaka teaching, the teaching on emptiness, has been implicit in the whole of the bodhis- you know, the way of the Bodhisattva up to now. And if you if you read it carefully, and if you read it with a you know a good commentary, you will you will discover over the years amazing depths to this uh text and this teaching and and it's the i I think as the dalai lama said it's it's extremely trustworthy you can trust it uh you can uh if you take if you take this to heart (laughs) death will hold no fear for you because uh it's only a stage in your bodhisattva path when you take refuge from a, from a mahayana point of view you take refuge until you until you attain enlightenment and um you know well but basically that that's basically what I wanted to say so if you have anything to uh, add anything you'd like to ask or say there's a lady here and please please uh, Speak <sighs> um did you want to ask something oh okay, okay okay. 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 okay.
2: Um,
0: Hi. Hi. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just uh, not sure if if this is going to make me sound ignorant, but I I wonder about the origin of the Tonglen teachings, Exchanging Self for Others. It sounded as if this text was the origin for that, or historically speaking?
1: Um, To be honest, I don't know. I mean, they're obviously closely connected. Judy, do you know (laughs) <laughs> I, I think I think quite possibly it is, uh, you know. But it, but in fact, it's not it, it's not just in uh, in the way of the bodhisattva that you have this idea of exchange another. It's an essential feature of the Mahayana path. So, and uh, maybe, maybe maybe here I I don't know. I mean it was yeah. Mm.
2: Thank you. That was wonderfully clear and and full. Uh, Maybe you can help me because there's a passage that stuck in my mind for many years, and I can't remember the context, but it always impressed me. And uh, it's at a point where Deva basically is declaring that you should take up arms and with full force against the kleshas, Mm -hmm. the afflictions. Yes. And it seems, uh, it's almost as, low, as though Donald Trump were, were taking up bodhicitta as a cause. It's like, you know, just let them have it. And uh, it seems like such a contrast with so many teachings on maitri, where the approach to dealing with the kleshas is more loving kindness and and, and relaxation uh, of, of the tensions around it. I've heard one person comment that maybe it's because he was, Shantideva himself was satria caste, warrior caste, and something was coming up again. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm wondering uh, if you could, if you remember, uh, if you could place that for me within the context of the book because I've forgotten exactly where it is, and whether you could comment on the vehemence with which he tells you to take up arms against the glaciers. Mm -hmm. Whether that's even possibly tantric in the sense that you take the same energy that he 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 says to remove from uh, yourself from with regard to aggression and then use it against the glaciers.
1: I think it's in, um, I think it's chapter four, carefulness. I mean, I th- actually, he says it on he says it on several occasions. I think this kind of emotion comes up on several occasions. Um, and I think, yeah, you, you have to remember that uh, Shantideva was talking about himself. You know, right at the beginning, he says, uh, "I don't have any idea that this will help others." I'm, I've, I'm reciting this I compose this to deepen my own understanding so it's a reflection of his personality yes mm-hmm. so I think that uh, you know you don't uh, I, I'm sure that there are other ways of dealing with these um, the clashes which might be more subtle and might be more appropriate to uh, you know to other temperaments but it's true that he does he does get he does get very uh, worked up about it because he's uh I, and i think because he sort of realizes uh, how high the stakes are and uh you know he says um um you know there's this thing about uh i won't stop until i actually see them lying dead in front of me you know and uh this shall be my all-consuming passion filled with rancor i will wage my war and he says, defilement of this kind will halt defilement. And for this reason, it should not be spurned. So it's kind of, it's sort of energetic. I, I mean, it's, it obviously worked for him, but it might not work for, you know. So, there, you know, I mean, the Buddha, the Buddha is skilled in means. There, there is uh, endless, endless teachings that are suitable to any person.